Section 12 of The Luck of Roaring Camp and Other Sketches. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by David Wales. The Luck of Roaring Camp and Other Sketches by Bret Hart. Chapter 10. Melis, Part 4. Chapter 4. The long wet season had drawn near its close. Signs of spring were visible in the swelling buds and rushing torrents. The pine forest exhaled the fresher spicery. The azaleas were already budding, the ceanothus getting ready its lilac livery for spring. On the green upland which climbed Red Mountain at its southern aspect, the long spike of the monk's hood shot up from its broad-leaved stool and once more shook its dark blue bells. Again the billow above Smith's grave was soft and green, its crest just tossed with the foam of daisies and buttercups. The little graveyard had gathered a few new dwellers in the past year, and the mounds were placed two by two by the little paling until they reached Smith's grave, and there there was but one. General superstition had shunned it, and the plot beside Smith was vacant. There had been several placards posted about the town, intimating that, at a certain period, a celebrated dramatic company would perform, for a few days, a series of side-splitting and screaming farces, that, alternating pleasantly with this, there would be some melodrama and a grand divertisement which would include singing, dancing, and so forth. These announcements occasioned a great fluttering among the little folk, and were the theme of much excitement and great speculation among the master's scholars. The master had promised Melis, to whom this sort of thing was sacred and rare, that she should go, and on that momentous evening the master and Melis assisted. The performance was the prevalent style of heavy mediocrity. The melodrama was not bad enough to laugh at, nor good enough to excite. But the master, turning wearily to the child, was astonished and felt something like self-accusation in noticing the peculiar effect upon her excitable nature. The red blood flushed in her cheeks at each stroke of her panting little heart. Her small, passionate lips were slightly parted to give vent to her hurried breath. Her widely opened lids threw up and arched her dark eyebrows. She did not laugh at the dismal comicalities of the funny man, for Melis seldom laughed. Nor was she discreetly affected to the delicate extremes of the corner of a white handkerchief, as was the tender-hearted Clytie, who was talking with her feller and ogling the master at the same moment. But when the performance was over, and the green curtain fell on the little stage, Melis drew a long, deep breath, and turned to the master's grave face with a half-apologetic smile and wearied gesture. Then she said, "'Now take me home,' and dropped the lids of her black eyes, as if to dwell once more in fancy on the mimic stage." On their way to Mrs. Morfer's, the master thought proper to ridicule the whole performance. 
Now, he shouldn't wonder if Melis thought that the young lady who acted so beautifully was really in earnest, and in love with the gentleman who wore such fine clothes. Well, if she were in love with him, it was a very unfortunate thing. Why? asked Melis, with an upward sweep of the drooping lid. Oh, well, he couldn't support his wife at his present salary, and pay so much a week for his fine clothes, and then they wouldn't receive as much wages if they were married as if they were merely lovers. That is, added the master, if they were not already married to somebody else. But I think the husband of the pretty young countess takes the tickets at the door, or pulls up the curtain, or snuffs the candles, or does something equally refined and elegant. As to the young man with nice clothes, which are really nice now, and must cost at least two and a half or three dollars, not to speak of that mantle of red drugget which I happen to know the price of, for I bought some of it for my room once, as to this young man, Lissy, he is a pretty good fellow, and if he does drink occasionally I don't think people ought to take advantage of it and give him black eyes and throw him in the mud. Do you? I am sure he might owe me two dollars and a half a long time before I would throw it up in his face, as the fellow did the other night at Wyndham. Melis had taken his hand in both of hers, and was trying to look in his eyes, which the young man kept as resolutely averted. Melis had a faint idea of irony, indulging herself sometimes in a species of sardonic humor which was equally visible in her actions and her speech. But the young man continued in this strain until they had reached Mrs. Morfer's, and he had deposited Melis in her maternal charge. Waving the invitation of Mrs. Morfer to refreshment and rest, and shading his eyes with his hand to keep out the blue-eyed Clytemnestra's siren glances, he excused himself and went home. For two or three days after the advent of the dramatic company, Melis was late at school, and the master's usual Friday afternoon ramble was for once omitted, owing to the absence of his trustworthy guide. As he was putting away his books and preparing to leave the schoolhouse, a small voice piped at his side. "'Please, sir?' The master turned, and there stood Aristides Morfer. "'Well, my little man,' said the master, impatiently, "'what is it? Now, quick!' "'Please, sir, me and Kurg thinks that Melis is going to run away again.' "'What's that, sir?' said the master, with that unjust testiness with which we always receive disagreeable news. "'Why, sir, she don't stay home any more.' and Kurg and me see her talkin' with one of those actor-fellers, and she's with him now. And please, sir, yesterday she told Kurg and me she could make a speech as well as Miss Celestina Montmorency, and she spouted right off by heart. And the little fellow paused in a collapsed condition. What actor? asked the master. Him as wears the shiny hat and hair and gold pen, and gold chain, said the just Aristides, putting periods for commas to eke out his breath. The master put on his gloves and hat, feeling an unpleasant tightness in his chest and thorax, and walked out in the road. 
Aristides trotted along by his side, endeavoring to keep pace with his short legs to the master's strides, when the master stopped suddenly, and Aristides bumped up against him. "'Where were they talking?' asked the master, as if continuing the conversation. "'At the arcade,' said Aristides. When they reached the main street, the master paused. "'Run down home,' said he to the boy. "'If Melissa's there, come to the arcade and tell me. If she isn't there, stay home. Now run.' And off trotted the short-legged Aristides. The arcade was just across the way, a long rambling building containing a bar-room, billiard-room, and restaurant. As the young man crossed the plaza, he noticed that two or three of the passers-by turned and looked after him. He looked at his clothes, took out his handkerchief, and wiped his face before he entered the bar-room. It contained the usual number of loungers who stared at him as he entered. One of them looked at him so fixedly and with such a strange expression that the master stopped and looked again, and then saw it was only his own reflection in a large mirror. This made the master think that perhaps he was a little excited, and so he took up a copy of the Red Mountain Banner from one of the tables, and tried to recover his composure by reading the column of advertisements. He then walked through the bar-room, through the restaurant, and into the billiard-room. The child was not there. In the latter apartment a person was standing by one of the tables with a broad-rimmed glazed hat on his head. The master recognized him as the agent of the dramatic company. He had taken a dislike to him at their first meeting from the peculiar fashion of wearing his beard and hair. Satisfied that the object of his search was not there, he turned to the man with a glazed hat. He had noticed the master, but tried that common trick of unconsciousness in which vulgar natures always fail. Balancing a billiard cue in his hand, he pretended to play with a ball at the center of the table. The master stood opposite to him until he raised his eyes. When their glances met, the master walked up to him. He had intended to avoid a scene or quarrel, but when he began to speak, something kept rising in his throat and retarded his utterance, and his own voice frightened him. It sounded so distant, low, and resonant. "'I understand,' he began, "'that Melissa Smith, an orphan, and one of my scholars, has talked with you about adopting your profession. Is that so?' The man with the glazed hat leaned over the table and made an imaginary shot, then sent the ball spinning around the cushions. Then, walking round the table, he recovered the ball and placed it upon the spot. This duty discharged, getting ready for another shot, he said, "'Suppose she has.' The master choked up again, but squeezing the cushion of the table in his gloved hand, he went on, if you are a gentleman, I have only to tell you that I am her guardian and responsible for her career. You know as well as I do the kind of life you offer her. As you may learn of any one here, I have already brought her out of an existence worse than death, out of the streets and the contamination of vice. I am trying to do so again. 
Let us talk like men. She has neither father, mother, sister, or brother. Are you seeking to give her an equivalent for these? The man with the glazed hat examined the point of his cue, and then looked round for somebody to enjoy the joke with him. I know that she is a strange, willful girl, continued the master, but she is better than she was. I believe that I have some influence over her still. I beg and hope, therefore, that you will take no further steps in this matter, but as a man, as a gentleman, leave her to me. I am willing, but here something rose again in the master's throat, and the sentence remained unfinished. The man with the glazed hat, mistaking the master's silence, raised his head with a coarse, brutal laugh, and said in a loud voice, "'Want her yourself, do ye? You? That cock won't fight here, young man!' The insult was more in the tone than the words, more in the glance than tone, and more in the man's instinctive nature than all these. The best appreciable rhetoric of this kind of animal is a blow. The master felt this, and with his pent-up nervous energy finding expression in the one act, he struck the brute full in his grinning face. The blow sent the glazed hat one way and the cue another, and tore the glove and skin from the master's hand from knuckle to joint. It opened up the corners of the fellow's mouth and spoilt the peculiar shape of his beard for some time to come. There was a shout, an imprecation, a scuffle, and the trampling of many feet. Then the crowd parted right and left, and two sharp, quick reports followed each other in rapid succession. Then they closed again about his opponent, and the master was standing alone. He remembered picking bits of burning wadding from his coat-sleeve with his left hand. Someone was holding his other hand. Looking at it, he saw it was still bleeding from the blow, but his fingers were clenched around the handle of a glittering knife. He could not remember when or how he got it. The man who was holding his hand was Mr. Morpher. He hurried the master to the door, but the master held back and tried to tell him as well as he could with his parched throat about Melisse. "'It's all right, my boy,' said Mr. Morpher. "'She's home.' and they passed out into the street together. As they walked along, Mr. Morpher said that Melissa had come running into the house a few moments before, and had dragged him out, saying that somebody was trying to kill the master at the arcade. Wishing to be alone, the master promised Mr. Morpher that he would not seek the agent again that night, and parted from him, taking the road toward the schoolhouse. He was surprised in nearing it to find the door open, still more surprised to find Melisse sitting there. The master's nature, as I have hinted before, had, like most sensitive organizations, a selfish basis. The brutal taunt thrown out by his late adversary still rankled in his heart. It was possible, he thought, that such a construction might be put upon his affection for the child which at best was foolish and quixotic. Besides, had she not voluntarily abnegated his authority and affection? And what had everybody else said about her? 
why should he alone combat the opinion of all and be at last obliged tacitly to confess the truth of all they had predicted and he had been a participant in a low bar-room fight with a common boor and risked his life to prove what what had he proved nothing what would the people say what would his friends say what would mcsnagley say in his self-accusation the last person he should have wished to meet was melisse he entered the door and going up to his desk told the child in a few cold words that he was busy and wished to be alone. As she rose, he took her vacant seat, and, sitting down, buried his head in his hands. When he looked up again she was still standing there. She was looking at his face with an anxious expression. "'Did you kill him?' she asked. "'No,' said the master. "'That's what I gave you the knife for.' said the child quickly. "'Gave me the knife?' repeated the master in bewilderment. "'Yes, gave you the knife. I was there under the bar, saw you hit him, saw you both fall. He dropped his old knife. I gave it to you. Why didn't you stick him?' said Millis rapidly, with an expressive twinkle of the black eyes and a gesture of the little red hand. The master could only look his astonishment. "'Yes,' said Melis. "'If you'd asked me, I'd told you I was off with the play-actors.' "'Why was I off with the playmasters? "'Because you wouldn't tell me you was going away. "'I knew it. "'I heard you tell the doctor so. "'I wasn't a-going to stay here, alone with those morphers. "'I'd rather die first. "'With a dramatic gesture which was perfectly consistent with her character, "'she drew from her bosom a few limp green leaves, and holding them out at arm's length, said in her quick vivid way, and in the queer pronunciation of her old life, which she fell into when unduly excited, "'That's the poison plant you said would kill me. I'll go with the play-actors, or I'll eat this and die here. I don't care which. I won't stay here, where they hate and despise me. Neither would you let me, if you didn't hate and despise me, too.' The passionate little breast heaved, and the two big tears peeped over the edge of Melissa's eyelids, but she whisked them away with the corner of her apron, as if they had been wasps. "'If you lock me up in jail,' said Melissa fiercely, "'to keep me from the play-actors, I'll poison myself. Father killed himself. Why shouldn't I? You said a mouthful of that root would kill me, and I always carry it here.' and she struck her breast with her clenched fist. The master thought of the vacant plot beside Smith's grave, and of the passionate little figure before him. Seizing her hands in his, and looking full into her truthful eyes, he said, "'Lissy, will you go with me?' The child put her arms around his neck, and said joyfully, "'Yes!' "'But now? Tonight?' "'Tonight.' and hand in hand they passed into the road, the narrow road that had once brought her weary feet to the master's door, and which it seemed she should not tread again alone. The stars glittered brightly above them. For good or ill, the lesson had been learned, and behind them the school of Red Mountain closed upon them forever. 
End of Melis, Chapter 4